0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today Robert Pollin. He is the co-author, along with Noam Chomsky, of the just published Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet, just out from Verso Press. Robert, thank you so much for joining the show
1: thanks very much for having me on
0: So this is a very timely issue. Probably the single greatest public policy issue uh, facing the planet is, is global warming and the discussions around it and uh, you have a, a kind of a seat at the table with your view on it It's a really tricky issue. People are extremely divided uh, uh, about it lots of different uh, approaches to climate change and the economics of climate change, and as we'll get into some really tricky kind of economic questions that a professional economist such as yourself takes up discount rates and GDP costs and so forth. Give us your perspective, an overview of your perspective, why you and your co-author have chosen to write this now and and what territory you want to kind of stake out for for our listeners.
1: Uh, I've been working on the topic for about 13 years now really my background is a, is a macroeconomist and macroeconomists study economic growth job creation uh recessions financial markets and that's what i did and um continue to do but uh, so i i would say 13 or 14 it wasn't like i didn't know about climate change and wasn't concerned but about 13 years ago, it occurred to me, I can't keep doing work on macroeconomics without thinking about how the climate crisis uh, plays into everything we do in macro. So, you know, if we're talking about the economy growing, what is the impact of economic growth on emissions, uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions? Um and then there was the, the thing that really focused my attention, because it was close to other things that I had worked on, was the argument that was pervasive and I would say probably is still dominant, which is that, okay, if we want to do something about climate, we can. There are policy tools that we can pursue. They can be effective. But if we do those, we're sacrificing uh, well-being. Uh, standard measured well-being like people having jobs and so it became crystallized as jobs versus the environment and there was you know there was polls taken including in highly respectable places like the new york times which is more important to you jobs or the environment and it seemed to me uh that this was uh posing the very question wrong not that I needed to get the right answer, but the question itself was wrong, the premise, the premise that uh, in order to protect the environment, in order to pursue a viable climate stabilization path, we have to sacrifice material well-being. And so really that was the starting point for my research, and I've been on it in various ways ever since. So this, this specific project with Professor Chomsky emerged out of just uh discussions where we had done some joint short interviews uh and it was really just kind of the imperative of how can we get this message out that uh we only have a limited amount of time to pursue a serious climate stabilization path that really uh you know literally the future of life on earth as we know it is at stake i'm not saying everyone's going to be dying in the next 30 years, but we are on an extremely perilous path. We're playing Russian roulette with the environment. And how do we help uh, push the story out such that we have a solution, uh, we have a way through which we can achieve a viable climate stabilization path, and do so in a way that does not sacrifice material well-being for the overwhelming majority of the people?
0: Let me just stop, stop you there just so for provide some context for, for the listeners. The book, by the way, is in the form of an uh, interview with a third party, one of your associates interviewing you and Professor Noam Chomsky. So it's very conversational. It's not you know academic journal uh, account of um, carbon gas levels and so forth uh, and all of the details. It is a very readable account of these issues from an economic perspective, granted, but takes on these issues at, at a fairly high level that I think most people like you professionals who are going about their business but also realizing hmm, climate change has a big impact on whatever your business is frankly i think all right. of us can agree that almost whatever we do we can sense the the impact of climate change on it so it it's at that level aware it's not a, it's not a super technical text so i just wanted to uh to make that clear to readers
1: thank you for me yeah i mean i the aim in writing the book was so that Seriously, a, an intelligent high school student can not just get through it, but can appreciate it, can absorb the points, um, can you know learn from it, can critique it. That's really the, the audience yeah. that we aim for and anybody more sophisticated. But I, I seriously think that a high school student who has to be interested in the subject, of course, uh, would not find any barriers, certainly not any technical kind of barriers to...
0: Yeah, your co-author book. sometimes goes goes off script, but uh, that's already kind of a, a given. <laughs> I, I should mention again, your your background as an economist, you are a, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and, and co-director of Political right. political Economy Research uh, Institute at, at uh, UMass. Inst- so you have, have this background bringing the economics into it, and I I work in finance by day and and have done a lot of interviews with economists over the years for for this podcast. We end up (laughs) talking about discount rates and GDP more often than we should. They're really, really, really flawed. But I think one of the things that's challenging, and as I've reviewed several books on this, and I hope you can can try to address it uh, from the inside is that for whatever reason, it's not a problem, but for whatever reason, the leading figures of uh, discussing climate change have settled on where are we gonna be at the end of the next century, of uh, this century, excuse me, twenty one hundred eighty 80 years from now, with some waypoints 2030, 2040, 2050, but really an 80 year exercise. Reasonably so because uh, climate change has occurred over a couple of centuries, uh, the causes, and it's, it can't be changed overnight. But when you start talking about um, uh, solutions, global public policy that's going to have an impact over eighty years, it gets can get very wonky very quickly, regardless of which side that you're on. And I, I wonder if, at your as you say, for the high school or the reasonably perceptive, just professional reading this, do these people, regardless of which side, and there are multiple sides, on the economic policy perspective, I you know how how does. What kind of meaning does this have when you change a discount rate by 25 basis points, and 80 years later you have a dramatic change in whatever the outcome is, or the growth rates, or the the forecasts, and so forth? Just as an economist dealing with long tails, forecasting is is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did you do that as you were working through this?
1: Well, you know, I I, I didn't uh, model it in the way that's, for example, uh, Nordhaus William Nordhaus who won the Nobel Prize. Um, two years ago for his work on climate economics, I didn't focus on the issue of the the relative sacrifices that we have to make in order to achieve, uh, you know, one and a half degree stabilization, one and a half degree centigrade um, increase in the average temperature relative to the pre-industrial level or two degrees or three degrees. I really, I I took a different tack, which is to say, okay, we know what the climate scientists tell us uh, where, where we have to be. And I, and I take as a kind of totally mainstream approach the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their 2018 reports that we have to get emissions down by 45% in 10 years and uh, 100% net zero by 2030. So then I look at the, the various economic models that estimate how much it would cost in terms of investment uh, to basically ramp up clean renewable energy and invest in energy efficiency such that we can hit that target uh, and then I look at the impact of those investments on an economy that is moving forward, and what what my basic finding is that look this is this is good for overall economy, as long as we manage it reasonably intelligently, it's going to create jobs. It's going to create a lot more jobs than maintaining our existing fossil fuel dominant infrastructure. That's true in the United States. That's true in Western Europe. That's true in Africa. That's true in India. That's true in China. Uh, Solar, wind power, geothermal power, small-scale hydro um, are already at Av- on average, at cost parity with fossil fuel based energy. That is a fact that you can get by looking at documents from the Donald Trump Department of Energy, believe it or not. So, the real question for me, the most in- interesting, important, challenging question is how do we mount this investment project? Because that's what you're saying you talk about with your clients in the business world. It's, it's an investment model. And investments, a lot of people think of investments as good, as positive, forward thinking, building new things, creating new opportunities. So that was, that's really the way I think about it. How do we do this investment project that will enable us to get to a net zero emissions economy, a clean energy economy? And what will be the impact on opportunities for people in terms of standard things, incomes, wages? Uh, Business opportunities. There will be a lot of new business opportunities, especially way more for small scale businesses and and non-traditional businesses like co-ops. There's already energy co-ops in the Midwest, the United States. So that was really the, the way that I thought about the economic challenge.
0: Fair enough, and again, it's it's probably better. I did tangle uh, with with discount rates and and GDP figures because GDP is such a flawed measure of of success in this world, but it, it's the only one we're going. Uh, it, so, in some ways, it's easier just to think of you know what's what are the practical policy implications near term. One of the things that I have found, and I was hoping you would address because I think it, it will jump out at readers, is that it does appear to be the case that as someone comments on climate policy as a global policy initiative, the background politics really do come into play. Here to four in this interview, we're 13 minutes in, it, it's, I could be talking with any climate person, but you're not any climate person. You're, you really have very strong mm-hmm. views about the economics uh, of how societies are organized and how using a climate policy initiative could also address what are very important to you, social issues of inequality and so forth. So there's a great deal on the politics. I I think that has to be understood because, for instance, I I mentioned to you in in our green room, recently interviewed another author whose politics are completely the opposite of yours. And they're also trying to come up, but they come up with a solution which doesn't involve all of the investments that you're recommending, so it it the politics does really play a role. How, how do you, as you try to, I think you write somewhere in the book. I'm I'm trying to look over my notes, the exact place, but somewhere where it is uh, politically feasible, economically uh, sustainable, or and and but politically feasible somewhere in in there. And I'm, you know, the the politics of this account uh, with Noam Chomsky are not right down the middle. How how do you try to present that so that it it is feasible and you get the try to get the support of the broad middle and basically there's not much of a broad middle left in this country at this Mm -hmm. point unfortunately as we've all observed but (laughs) if there were the broad middle how how do you appeal to the broad middle at this point
1: well i can tell you on the ground uh, at this very moment uh i'm writing these uh what we uh, clean energy projects for nine different u.s states I've already done three other states. Now, true, the people that commissioned me to write these studies are mainly um, left of center environmental groups and labor groups. But uh, we know that, you know, a lot of the labor movement has been quite hostile around climate issues. Uh, So, for for example, a study that I published a year ago for the state of Colorado that was um, commissioned by the State-level AFL-CIO, totally mainstream labor movement. Um, they the labor movement commissioned it, paid for it, supported it, and not only the you know the the top administrators and so forth, but the the building trades who have been ex- generally quite hostile uh, to anything to do with uh, climate politics, uh, advancing a green new deal. They put their names on it. They endorsed it. So I've, I think, in that sense, I've succeeded in capturing the broad middle. And the reason is not because of anything special that I myself wrote, but that if you just think about it um, really carefully, it's, it's, a, it's a positive agenda for advancing job opportunities and general well being. Now, it doesn't guarantee any of those things. But in terms of you say GDP, uh, and I, of course, I totally agree that GDP has all kinds of things wrong with it. But the way that I have framed the, uh, the climate stabilization path, the investment project, there is no reason to think that GDP has to, be, uh, has to go down at all. Uh, some things are going to grow a lot. That makes GDP grow, meaning investments in the clean energy are going to grow a lot. Correspondingly, of course, the fossil fuel economy is going to contract. Uh, but the growth of the clean energy economy is going to create a lot more jobs and a lot more opportunity than the contraction of the fossil fuel economy. So, the broad now, of course, the, the fossil fuel companies aren't going to like that. But if we create uh, transition policies, fair, just transition policies, even for workers and communities in the affected fossil fuel uh, dependent areas uh that should enable them to come around and see look this is something we have to do uh for environmental reasons but we should also think of it as a as an opportunity to really do some innovative innovative things
0: so uh, fair enough and again even i think everyone agrees that uh Investment in green energy is a very good idea. There seems to be agreement on a carbon tax as well. Uh, curiously, far left and far right uh, seem to realize that a carbon, tax, a globally enforced carbon tax, because otherwise with leakage it just won't work. Uh, but a globally enforced carbon tax makes sense. Investment makes a lot of sense. But you're also talking, and maybe more, your your co-author, but you know, reorganization of social and economic relationships in society, not just fixing, uh, sure. not fix, just fixing a, a technology. A, Climate problem, but using a climate problem to, to reorder society—that's going to get the attention of some people and the opposition of others.
1: Well, let's just say that if if if, if I were to say, "Look, the only thing I want to do is get to zero emissions, uh, and everything else about U.S. capitalism or any other society, we're going to put that aside for the moment." Um, If we were just to say we have that one narrow focus, that still means we're effectively shutting down one of the biggest global industries in the world over the next 30 years. That is pretty much unprecedented. It will entail massive political mobilization. Now, of course, that massive political mobilization is not going to just be people that are isolated and say, we think everything else about society is fine. We just want to shut down the fossil fuel companies. That's not the way it's going to work. That's not how it does work. Uh, So that what is going to be, of course, is going to be uh, a coalition of different forces. And uh, so, for example, around this idea of a Green New Deal, there are groups within that coalition that think, okay, the climate issue we care about, but we really care more about racism. Uh, We care about... Uh, inequality in the cities. Uh, We care about, yes, transportation. We care about housing costs. So all of those things are going to be interconnected. And yes, people will have different points of emphasis and things that they think are important. Uh, I myself, yeah, I think that I think we can take this opportunity to build a green economy as also an opportunity to advance uh, equality. We have experienced in the last, since not roughly 1980, massive increases in inequality. And we're seeing the results of that now. We're seeing the results of uh, tremendous uh, extent of resentment uh, by huge proportions of the population over the, their sense that they've been left behind. And they're right. And so, this can be that by creating job opportunities and new investment opportunities and new communities, uh, this is also a way through which we can transform society to make it more equal and just. So,
0: you do it just for the reader, do argue pretty strongly that you mentioned cooperatives as a private business enterprise are okay, as it were. But in the path in the Green New Deal, you don't see much room for larger scale private. enterprise uh as receiving the largesse of this investment that you know, i think there's a you know 50 percent private 50 percent public investments uh but a big role for the government as opposed to what you refer to as neoliberal capitalists or neoliberal economists who are, are arguing in favor of the um the private sector seeing a profit motive in green energy and uh acting on it you just don't you just don't buy that
1: No, I do buy it. In fact, I myself am a green capitalist. I have a small business that we do investments and we finance things. So I'm definitely not against it or I'd be a total hypocrite. Uh, It's a question of proportions and it's a question of, you know, to what extent. And it's a question of what does it really take to move the agenda forward? If we are going to wait for big, giant corporations that are expecting 15% rates of return before they're going to make one move to, let's say, start installing solar panels on the roofs of office buildings, uh, we're never going to get to a climate path. Uh, What we really need, therefore, we need massive subsidies for investments. Uh, We need public investments and subsidies for private investments. But if there's going to be subsidies for private investments, then the deal is that the private companies have to accept lower rates of return. That always has to be if, – if the state is reducing your risk, the state is giving you a benefit, then in exchange, you have to accept a lower rate of return. Uh, that's the principle. I know that's not how we operate now. Now we operate uh, on the principle of basically corporate socialism, wherein the government absorbs risk, reduces risk for private companies, and then the companies take all the benefit. That's not really – a socially ethical way to organize an economy.
0: So if we are going to use a larger role for the government in mitigating risk and therefore justifying lower returns, you're still faced with the position that we have an 80-year policy outlook and policy measurement period, which is hard under any circumstance for any project. And determining who, you know, what the right policy metrics are. In in some of the other literature that I've read, the you know the the math that you're looking at about what percentage of the investment in the GDP would be necessary to achieve some of the Paris goals, uh, you know, is it two and a half percent of GDP per year? Is it more? That I suspect is is highly uh, debatable and will change. You know, could could be it could be five times as much. It uh, mm-hmm. could be ten times as much. It could be perhaps less if someone comes up with a really you know hydrogen power really quickly. Your co-author, I think, and and you also referenced that the amount of GDP that was spent on World War II as a percentage of the U.S. economic activity was something on the order of ninety percent, and that kind of worked out in a sense uh, that this is not that big of an ask for a nationwide. Effort it would have to be global effort, but in terms of U.S. GDP, a, a, a nationwide effort is that a, a fair summary?
1: Well, here's how I, I did. You know, those the two and a half percent of GDP. Were, you know, I, I didn't pull it out of the sky. Uh, what I did was look at the um, figures, actually, from the, the, the U.S. Energy Department as to their estimate of how much it costs to build capacity for, say, solar power, wind power. And how much it costs to uh, raise the efficiency of automobiles or buildings or industrial equipment. So I took those numbers and then I inflated them uh, just to make sure I wasn't undercounting anything. I could be off, but that's really the numbers that I, that was the basic methodology I used. And it's also the case that, you know, so I use my own methodology. If I look at other models, I've been looking at other models just today and the last few days uh, by very credible people. They're in the same range.
0: I think Nordhaus uh, is in the 4% range, something like that. Uh, I, I could be wrong. But they're, they're, as you say, they're in the same range.
1: Yeah. So um, I, you know, I think it's reasonable if it's 3% of GDP, that still means that 97% of GDP is being used on other things. And that's in the context of a growing economy. The, you know, there are more things getting done, and we are channeling 3%. And, it, and it, we can't think that that 3% is just getting tossed away. That 3% is generating jobs. It is delivering energy at a cheaper, at a lower price on average than the existing energy system. It is creating job opportunities. And for the average consumer, it's going to mean lower energy costs not higher. And the reason it's lower, if we allow that on average that um, uh, renewable energy is on average at rough parity with fossil fuel energy and that we are investing heavily in raising energy efficiency standards, that means it's going to cost less to get you know the energy services you need. It's going to cost less to drive 1,000 miles. It's going to cost less to air condition your house over the summer. So yeah I
0: mean this, th- there is agreement again as I said there devils in the detail uh as to the costs and the benefits but I think there is broad agreement that yes innovation uh and investment in green energy is uh a good thing there, there no one's disagreeing with that it's just the the costs the returns the time frame and the benefit are all subject to tremendous amount of uncertainty, in particular, given the long cycle nature of this, and that's part of the problem that I think you mentioned. You know, people who for whom you're working uh, now, drawn up programs that uh, you know many segments of society just don't know how to figure out or think about what you know, we need to do something that's good in eighty years, uh, but is going to cost us now is that, that's a that's a hard sell. Particularly, I have to say when. The, we're heading in a period in society right now, not just this society but globally, where cooperative ventures are on their are struggling, and ethno or, or national or state based initiatives and ethno nationalism are are on ascendant. And you know there are a lot of challenges to the Paris Accord, and it doesn't have to do just with you know single country in a, you know India, China, emerging markets, Russia, Brazil, the United States. There's just a lot of of challenges to this right now. There's agreement on the problem. There's an agreement that invest investment is, is a part of the solution. After that, the knives come out. And I just, uh, I, am saddened by that because it's hard for me to see how we get any type of global policy going forward at this point in time.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that at least as I'm presenting it, we, we don't it, it exactly what I'm saying. In my perspective, it's not like we get a payoff in 80 years and we sacrifice for the next, for the next 79 years in order to get the payoff in year 80. Uh, in fact, I'm saying we're going to see benefits now. Uh, these studies that I referred to at different state levels—they are precisely they are programs to um, move the economy now through uh, not just clean energy but the focus is clean energy investments to get out of the recession to generate jobs and to move on to a long-term sustainable path so i see the benefits now uh, you know the big big hurdle is to understand how you can inject the financing in order to get these immediate investment benefits these immediate job benefits and of course yes there's no question that the fossil fuel uh, economy is going to have to experience Demise. Uh, That's just the way it is. As it happens, uh, you know the U.S. oil uh, companies are down. You know they were down by 50% in terms of their market valuation. The uh, the U.S. government could have bought uh, the entire U.S. private fossil fuel sector for 350 billion dollars a couple of months ago, um, and that would have been the end of it. They could have bought 51% for $351 billion, and then they could have managed a uh, quite stable, steady decline of the industry and the transition to clean energy. Uh, So that, yes, they're going to face termination, but the rest of the economy is going to see economic benefits as measured in a standard way, not in 80 years, next year.
0: Okay. To, <laughs> to be determined, let, let's go over, again, other than investment, I, part of the work is the specific policy of the Green New Deal. We've provided an overview here, uh, obviously in investment, but some, I, I don't know, handcuffs are the right word, but some handcuffs, handcuffs on the private industry in, in regard to energy right now. But go, go over how, if you were in a position to, to just implement tomorrow the, the key points for the Green New Deal, they would be exactly what?
1: Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I just put out something for the state of Maine a week ago. So I have a very precise proposal. I did one for California about a month ago. Uh, so, yeah, we just start investing right now in energy efficiency and clean, renewable energy. And, and I uh, also trace through some of the things that really you start to see benefits like next week. We can start retrofitting buildings. We can retrofit the public buildings, save taxpayers money. Uh, yes, you have to you have to invest, you have to do the
0: And the capital for uh, this comes from where?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's so what I was just gonna say. So I mean the simplest way to think about that is if we think about public buildings, that the, the, the public sector floats bonds. The state floats bonds, as you probably know. The Federal Reserve just opened a new facility for the purchase of state and local government bonds to help uh, to help stimulate out of the the uh, recession the Federal Reserve is pumping something like four to five trillion dollars into purchasing bonds and other forms of loans to uh, Wall Street the private market so they could easily finance this focused on things at first and for uh, initially on things that would create jobs like right away like Let's retrofit all the public buildings in the state of Ohio starting next week. We can do that. It's not a high-tech operation. It creates jobs for people at all levels of credentials and backgrounds. And then from there, yes, move on. From there, we start thinking about um, installing solar panels on every roof. Uh, we start thinking about putting um, wind turbines and uh, on farmlands where farmers like it. It creates a second source of income. Uh, you can space them. Uh, you only need about 5 to 10% of the land area, and you can still grow crops. You can still uh, have animals graze.
0: This is, by the way, for readers, I think this is worth a little uh, detour. It's actually one of the really interesting uh, parts of the disagreement over this is the amount of land that would mm. be taken up for some of the green energy proposals. And there are disagreements as to whether it's a lot of land or a little land, but it's actually quite fascinating and mm-hmm. worth the read, not just in 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 your book, I, I, but also others. Something that you might not have expected, but as a reader, that the land usage comes out turns out to be a, a critical point for everyone in discussing uh climate yeah. policy.
1: Yeah, so in the in our book, what I basically work from the um the calculations of um, Mara Prentice, who's a physicist at Harvard, who has an outstanding book called Energy Revolution. And she goes through, uh, you know, to the point of understanding how much um, energy is coming off the sun uh, and is going to hit a solar panel and how much is going to therefore be absorbed and then gets translated into electricity. So I worked with Prentice And we did calculations, and uh, basically, you know, if we think about putting solar panels on roofs, putting um, turbines, wind turbines in agricultural land, we're really thinking about maybe maybe a half of 1% of the U.S. land area required to get us to a 100% renewable energy economy, which is, of course, a high-efficiency renewable energy economy. Now, yes, other people have uh made different points. I think uh Professor Prentice successfully uh demonstrates uh how much we need. And though, and her research has also been corroborated recently by other authors who focus on this issue. So I think it's it's a it's a pretty good story. Uh, you know, so we're looking at you know one half of one percent of land area, which means if we think about Rooftops, if we think about parking lots with putting solar panels in parking lots, and if we think about using farmland, some uh, share of the farmland for dual use uh, purpose, including the the turbines, uh, it's really not a serious constraint.
0: It it, it is not. And I I, I guess I'd probably come out on your side with that. Uh, Recently drove to the the West, and I, I think the land is not an issue. But the returns on investment and the amount of capital needed for this and the, the amount of carbon diminution that would result from this. There's no doubt that if you put up all of these wind farms and solar panels, it employs people they are reasonably good jobs and so forth. But it, it, the carbon intensity of the periodicity of that type of energy, as opposed to carbon-based energy, given the size and scope of our economy, as well as the size and scope of the Chinese and Indian economies, it, it can't even compare. And so that's the shortcoming uh, that... A wind farm and solar panel feels great, but it just doesn't move the needle enough to meet demand. Uh, not so much from this country, where the demand is not growing as much, but it's very large. But the, the growing demand for services that require energy in in emerging markets, specifically China and mm-hmm. in India, and getting them on board. You know, they're building a lot of. Uh, even Japan's building a lot of uh, coal fired plants, but. You know the Chinese and the Indians have their reasons for going forward with their program because of the basic, you know, uh, energy intensity of, of fossil fuels. It's it's gonna be a very hard counter argument to make with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I've been engaged with people in India. I, I wrote a paper with an Indian co author. The paper actually got a lot of attention in India, including in, you know, the top mainstream press and my co author, the Indian. Uh, was meeting with the current government, Um, the current government, which you think would be hostile around these issues. Uh, I think, you know, similar to the United States, there's no reason to think that we can't develop a a 100% clean energy economy in India. And there's some very prominent uh, energy engineers in India that have made this point from from an engineering standpoint. We've tried to do it from an economic standpoint now it, it it's the same issue you you do have to get over the hump you have to be able to really move the financing the, the technologies are fine they can improve but we're at an adequate level of technology now because of solar costs having come down so dramatically in the last decade indeed so how do we how do we actually deliver that financing that is the massive question. And of course, uh, in addition to that is the political question. But there's no reason, to, I don't think, and I'm not the only one, there's no reason to think that India can't do quite well as a clean energy economy, as it is. You know, Half of the people that live in rural India have no access to electricity, and never have, uh, and despite promises by every single politician that ever addressed the issue. So by uh, creating the opportunity for microgrids, for small-scale um, solar-wind combination, and you do need to address the storage issue, which you, you referred to. It's true, obviously. The sun doesn't shine all day. Wind doesn't blow all the time. So you need to have backups. But keep in mind that this this question of, of storage, which is extremely important, um, we don't have to answer that one right now because even if we say we are going to be 100% Clean energy in 30 years. That is 30 years from now, and in the meantime, we still will be relying to some significant extent on fossil fuel energy. So that can provide the underlying baseload while we expand the clean energy economy.
0: Okay, I think we're. I think we We've made that point. Uh, investment, investment, and investment. I do want to. Uh, make the point that you and maybe it 's more your co author, but it is also you do come out a little bit more aggressively on neoliberal economics and market based systems than maybe you' you 're uh, presenting it here, so you know the readers will want to uh, i think know that and, and understand that that there there 's uh, some sharp elbows uh, on the political side mm-hmm. in this book, one would expect yeah. nothing less from Noam Chomsky. And that you know, that's part of the equation. This is an opportunity not only to fix a global problem about energy and climate, but also you're taking it as an opportunity to address other issues that you and your co-author feel very strongly about. I I, I have to
1: say that. No, I, of course I don't, I don't hide from that at all. I, if I were afraid of presenting that, I certainly wouldn't be writing a book with Professor Noam Chomsky. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's a great honor. That's how I feel. It was a great honor that Noam. Uh, was interested in doing this project with me. So, uh yeah, I, I I'm not the least bit shy about it. Uh but you know, if you really look at at what Noam says and you look at what we're talking about, it's it's really uh quite kind of uh, we would say it's quite moderate social democracy. I mean, the idea of social of moderate social democracy or what, you know, we used to, the, the term one of my professors used to have way back was a slightly imaginary Sweden, uh, a version, a version of Sweden that is, you know, a little more idealistic than the, the current real-life Sweden. Um, that does not seem like such a big stretch. And it, you know, you can read people like in the Financial Times, Martin Wolf, the, probably the leading financial journalist in the world, who would tell you, oh yes, Swedish social democracy—that's one of the best systems ever devised. Now. Obviously, we don't we don't just copy Sweden the the blueprint, but the the idea of a mixed economy with an underlying commitment to equality and ecology, um, with uh, you know active private markets and capitalists such as myself. I am a capitalist. I'm a green capitalist. Uh, That's kind of the framework. And yes, also well-being for uh, you know uh, good union jobs for workers. Um uh, these things, you know, they seem outlandish now, uh, but that's only because we've been living under neoliberalism uh, for the last 40 years. And people, its we've gotten to the point where we forget how extreme neoliberalism is. I I was just teaching a class a few hours ago. We were going through data on the share of income in the United States that goes to the top one 100th one of 1%. Uh, in nineteen eighty that share was one percent of total national income, and now it's five percent uh of national income so in forty years the you know the the richest of the rich uh from getting you know on average seven million dollars a year in income, they're now getting thirty three million dollars a year in income, and everyone else is getting less of course so uh you know basically we're talking about reverting back. To some more um, egalitarian form of a market economy, and, and where we go from there, uh, let's see. But we have to we have to solve the climate crisis within the framework of capitalism. Noam does not disagree with that at all.
0: Oh, I think.
1: <laughs> no. well, he... hey, I was just doing an interview with him like two days ago, and he he said exactly that.
0: Okay. Okay. I I, I will. Take your word for it. When one reads the book, one does get classic Noam Chomsky. Let's put it that way. Uh, if you're looking yeah. for Noam Chomsky, here is Noam Chomsky. Yeah. And but the sections written by you and the sections written by him are separate and distinct. And you, uh, someone looking for, and uh, this is meant in the best way, Professor Poland, the the wonkish parts written by you are <laughs> what I was uh, most interested in and found most interesting because I am trying to understand the economics yeah. of this and
1: well really and, and so is Noam. that's why he wanted to do a book with me i mean noam chomsky is probably the most eminent public intellectual in the world and has been for decades but he would never claim to be an expert on anything to do with the economics of climate change so it's a mix it's a mix and yeah
0: yeah that, and that's fine The the book is climate crisis and the global green new deal the political economy of saving the planet by noam chomsky and robert Poland. Professor Poland, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your your views. It is a <laughs> important topic. It's an interesting topic. Your treatment, in particular, your treatment of it is you know part of that debate that we all need to be aware of. As we, although most of us disagree about various elements of this, but of sure. having to jointly face this issue and come up uh, with with a solution. So thank you for contributing to that uh, part of the debate.
1: Well, thanks a lot. And it's been a great discussion. I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure.